0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 is where we're picking up in our series through the book of Exodus that we're just a few weeks into now called Rescued and Redeemed. We are looking at the wonderful, amazing, powerful God whom we serve and how he intervenes in our lives to rescue us from our sin, to redeem us and make us his own. So we are picking up. In Exodus chapter 7, before we dive into that, uh, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it today. Jesus, again, we are so grateful that uh, you have brought us together, Lord, that we can look around this room and see other people in this world who have followed you, who belong to you, who want to give you their lives. Lord, it's encouraging to hear the voices of others singing praises to you. It's encouraging to look around and see people just like us, Lord, who are struggling in different ways and seasons of life, yet here we are looking to you. Lord, we don't want to look to ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Jesus, it is only by grace through faith in what you have done for us. Would you reveal that truth to our hearts today, even as we look at an ancient story, a historical event that happened so many years ago? Would you make it real to us today? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we left off in this grand story of Exodus, and we saw that the children of Israel... The people of God enslaved in Egypt. Things were not going well. They were excited because they had a plan. They were excited at first. Moses and his brother Aaron revealed the plan of God to them that God was going to rescue them from their slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But they go to Pharaoh. He declines to let them be free in fact he actually makes their labor much worse if you crawl if you recall last week he he made them have to work even harder and still produce the same amount of bricks for his grand construction projects there in ancient Egypt he did not cut them any slack he made things worse and so the people of God are left wondering where is God in all of this Is he not going to rescue us like he said he would? Why is he delaying this? Where is he? So they're in this dark hour of doubt and fear. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 7. Would you look with me at verses 1 through 6? And the Lord said to Moses, You see, we're going to stop right there for a second. When God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the whole Bible. What does that mean that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? You see, there's a lot here that we just have to admit that we don't know the answer to. God is God, we are not, and we don't understand exactly everything that this means, but there are three things that we can know for sure. One, God is ultimately in control. Number two, Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. He's responsible for his own sin. And three, God gives plenty of opportunities for Pharaoh to turn from his evil ways and trust the one true God. Pharaoh has time after time for for repentance, to turn away from his sin. All of those things are true. All right, let's keep going. Verse four, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. So God says he will use great acts of judgment for multiple purposes to judge Egypt for ignoring him and worshiping false gods with their whole society and culture. God is going to judge them for not worshiping their true creator. So they deserve that. That's what they deserve. God is also going to do this to rescue his own people. That's not what they deserve, but he's going to show them great grace and kindness. And all of these things beyond Israel and Egypt will be and serve as a revelation of the one true God to the surrounding world. When people hear that the greatest empire in the world, Egypt at the time, when people in other nations around the world hear what God is doing in Egypt, do you not know? Do you not think that that will serve as such a strong testimony of God's mighty power and his control and sovereignty in the world? So there will be 10 of these great acts of judgment. Many people refer, refer to these as plagues. And the first one that we see here is terrifying, as the others will be as well. Look and skip down to verse 20, Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank. So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So these Egyptians have built this massive empire, the greatest of the ancient world. And this little known deity that they've never heard of, A god of slaves comes, intervenes in their situation, and destroys their economy. You see, the Nile River meant everything to the Egyptians. It was their source of livelihood. It was their drinking source. And God wipes it away. So, you would think that would get Pharaoh's attention, right? Look at verse 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret art. So they did something to perform some kind of illusion or some kind of you know, hocus-pocus thing to make it look like that. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So the first act of judgment from God against This evil empire, Pharaoh ignores it. Then God sent a second and a third and a fourth act of judgment. And for sake of time today, we just don't have time to cover every single one. But those second, third, and fourth ones were pretty gross. God sent frogs, like lots of frogs. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'm one of those people who are like, I'm not touching a frog, you know what I mean? Like, they're gross, right? I'm just, that's how I am, okay? Well, guess what? This was miserable for someone like me and maybe like you. There were frogs everywhere, like frogs in your hair, frogs in your bed, frogs in your sink, frogs in your food, like frogs. You know what I mean? Like if you like frog legs, maybe that worked out, but otherwise, no, right? Third plague, there were gnats. I used to live in a rural area. Let me tell you, gnats near a cow pasture are the worst, right? I mean, it is terrible, right? And so that is the worst. Lots of gnats. God sent flies after that. One act at a time, these things are covering the land and making life miserable for the Egyptians. And then he sent a fifth plague. But notice this, God's people are spared. God's people don't have to suffer the judgment. Look at this. We're going to skip around a little bit. So we're going to chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. So God is, is killing the livestock of the Egyptians, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But, so did that get his attention? Nope. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. God then sends a sixth act of judgment. Boils begin to break out on people. Then we see God say something amazing through Moses to Pharaoh. Look at chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. This is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh after six acts of judgment. Terrible things are happening to Pharaoh's kingdom and his people, And God says this, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God says, I could have made this real easy and quick. You could have already been dead by now, verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, not just Egypt. All the earth will know the one true God. But look what God says, verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You see, just in those couple of verses, we see God's patience. I mean, think about that. Does not each act of judgment each plague really serve as an opportunity to repent of your sin and turn to God is this not opportunity after opportunity for Pharaoh's attention to be awakened to the one true Lord we see God's patience we see God's purpose right but we also see Pharaoh's pride God's purpose is to proclaim his power throughout the whole world so the world may know who he is but Pharaoh's pride, God says, you're still exalting yourself. We're going to come back to that thought. Then there's a the seventh plague, a very devastating one. Look at verse 23 of chapter 9. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hell, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hell upon the land of Egypt. So verses 24 and 25, the next verses tell us this was an extraordinary hailstorm. It killed everything that was not under some kind of shelter. Look at verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, that's where the Israelites were living. Only in the land of Goshen where the, people, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. God sparing his people from his judgment. Verses 27 through 30, let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Well, this is shocking. Pharaoh now is thinking, okay, I get it. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. This is the news they've been waiting to hear, right? So now Pharaoh's thinking, okay, so the God of the Israelites, he's real. And I've apparently made him angry, right? That's what Pharaoh's probably thinking. But to Pharaoh, he's no different. God, Our God, the one true God, to Pharaoh is no different than all the other Egyptian gods who control some aspect of nature or the world. He just thinks he's upset this one. Verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Moses says, I know that you don't really fear the Lord. See, we're going to talk about what that means later, but Moses is clarifying a difference here between knowing something about God and knowing Him personally. Pharaoh is learning about God. But has he really turned his heart to him? Look at down, down at verses 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So obviously, Pharaoh, there's no real heart change in his life. He thinks that he can work God with his fake sorrow. Right and his fake remorse. Look down at chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. How long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to see the majesty of God and to humble yourself before him? You see, Moses and Aaron know the only way for Pharaoh to be in a right relationship with God is to humble himself, to turn away from his pride and self glory, and to submit his entire heart and life to the one true God. But Pharaoh doesn't do that. Pharaoh continues to consider himself a God as the ancient Egyptians did. He's not going to humble himself, he's not going to submit to anybody else. He's his own boss. He's his own authority. He's going to do life the way he wants. Then there's an eighth plague. God sent locusts. Pharaoh pretends to be sorry again, but as soon as the locust goes away, he's still not letting them go. Then there was a ninth plague, and this is the last one we're going to look at today darkness. Darkness covered the entire land. Look at chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, if you lost power in the storm or or perhaps you've been in a situation where it was just utter darkness and you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Imagine, this is a world without electricity, right? And this is a difficult world to have complete darkness for three days. That is very depressing. The sun did not shine at all. Three complete dark days over Egypt, God is miraculously, supernaturally intervening in his own creation that he spoke into existence and is somehow Miraculously, causing that part of the world to be utterly, completely dark for three entire days. Now that obviously serves as some kind of ominous warning that something really frightening is perhaps to come. But it also serves as a slap in the face to the Egyptians and their religion. You see, in ancient Egypt, their most powerful and respected God was called Ra, R-A. He was their sun god. Hmm. You see there? They thought that Ra, the sun god, oh, he was the greatest. Nobody can mess with him. But here comes the god of their slaves, rises up and says, no, the sun belongs to me. There will be one more plague, a 10th one, a final one. And it's going to be the worst one yet. But we're going to pause here. So next Sunday morning sermon will be about that 10th plague. But we're going to stop here for this week. Because I want us to see three things that we can learn from these first nine acts of judgment. These first nine plagues or acts of judgment that God sent onto the Egyptians. What, are, what, are, what can we learn from this? Three things. Number one, God has made himself known to all people and demands a response. I mean, that's what we see here in this story today. God makes himself known clearly. And humanity has to do something with that knowledge. Remember what Pharaoh said when Moses and Aaron first asked him to to let the Israelites go? What did he say? Back in Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, you can see it on the screen there. Pharaoh very arrogantly said, well, who's the Lord? I don't know who you're talking about. Who, Who is the Lord? I don't know your God, Pharaoh says. But you see, that was a lame excuse. Because through these plagues, what What did God say he was doing? God was very clear all along. I'm making myself known to the entire world. My people have been living in slavery for almost 400 years. It's been a long time since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked the earth. So I'm going to make myself known amongst my earth that has been broken and tainted with sin, corrupted with evil. I'm going to make my presence known God himself is doing this in a land full of false gods, full of idols, full of sin to the whole world he's doing this. Look at this, verse uh, chapter 9, verse 16. He said, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, God's been very clear all along. He is making himself known. So Pharaoh has no excuse for not knowing who God is. But guess What? Just like Pharaoh coming up with an excuse, I don't know who God is. Who is God? Who, who am I to say? Boy, we hear that same excuse in the world today, don't we? Well, I mean, how do we know Jesus is really God? How do we, who am I to say that Jesus is right and Islam is wrong? How, who am I to say that, that, that Jesus is God and, and Buddha isn't, right? Who, who am I to say But has God revealed himself to us? In the 21st century, has God made himself known? Yes. You know the greatest way God has made himself known? By coming to earth himself. You see, God didn't leave us without any knowledge of who he is. He loved us so much, he came to us. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, Fully God and fully man came to earth to show us what God is like. To do what we could never do. You see, not only that, God has given us his word. He's given us the Bible. How gracious of God to give humanity written words about himself. You know, Like we're not left just looking up into the stars wondering. He's revealed himself. He is a God who speaks. He spoke creation into existence. He knew your name, your written name, while you were still in your mother's womb. Our God is a God who speaks and reveals himself and shows others who he is, shows the world. But many people try to ignore that. Many people try to ignore this great revelation of God just like Pharaoh. We tend to think naturally in our sinful human minds that God is something we can ignore. Perhaps we can even shape Him into a figment of our imagination. God can be whatever you want Him to be, we may think. Even though His existence and His greatness has been made obvious to all people at all times. Look at this, Romans chapter 1. Thad read this during worship this morning. But look at, we're going to read it again. Romans 1, 18 through 23. Just think about the story in Egypt today and think about what Paul's saying here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. God created all people with an innate understanding that there must be something greater than ourselves. But what does the scriptures tell us? We suppress that. Because we don't want anybody to be greater than ourselves. We want to be the greatest. So we're going to suppress this innate desire God himself wired you with to worship a being greater than yourself. No, 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 no. We don't want to hear that. We're going to suppress that. We want to be the greatest being. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Who? Me. You. People. We don't have any excuses to not know who God is. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who does that sound like? Pharaoh? Me? You? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Sounds like ancient Egypt to me. False gods that resembled birds, wolves, animals, creeping things. False gods in the 21st century that resemble money, pleasure, respect, success. This sounds like it was written exactly about Pharaoh in Egypt, but I think it was written about us. As well. It's true for all people. You see, the real problem is that we don't want God to be greater than us. So we suppress this truth. And what happens to our hearts? They become hardened just like Pharaoh's. If there is, you see, if if there is only one true God who is the creator of all things, then guess what? You can't suppress that in the end. It's going to come to light, whether before you die, hopefully you come to that realization or when you stand before your creator, there will be no suppression of the truth. He is a God that we can't ignore. If he really became a man, if God really sent Jesus to earth to live a perfect life, fully God, fully man, die for the sins of the world, raised from the dead. Listen, if Jesus really raised out of that ancient tomb in Palestine 2000 years ago, you can't ignore that. Now, if he's still dead, then we can ignore it and there's no sense or point in coming to church. What is the point? But if Jesus is alive, then not only does what we do in this room matter, but every single second of your existence matters if Jesus is alive. He's a God you cannot ignore. We all must respond to him. We can't shrug it off and say, well, I'll just take my chances, or, you know, I'm going I'm to party it up when I'm young, and then later on I'm going to get a little more serious about God, you know, when I'm settling down and stuff like that. You can't say that. He is a God that we can't ignore now or later. T. Desmond, Alexander, theologian he uses this illustration about getting a recall notice for a product that you bought. You've probably gotten one perhaps uh, with the vehicle you drive. I would say specific types of vehicles, but I don't want to offend anybody. All right. But let me just say, listen, hey, I'm one to ignore warning signs. Okay. Like when my check engine light comes on, you know, my first thought is, eh, probably nothing, right? Probably not a big deal, right? I'm not spending money, whatever it is, I don't want to spend money on it, right? I just need good tires and good brakes. That's all I'm worried about, okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? So here's what Alexander says. He says, have you ever received a recall letter for a product? It lets us know that a problem has been discovered with the item we own. It puts us on notice and shifts the responsibility to us. If we choose to do nothing, With that notice, then the responsibility is ours alone. Sometimes, ignoring such a notice is no big deal, but at other times, it can mean the difference between life and death. You see, the same thing is true with us, with all of humanity. We are broken. We are broken because of our own choice, our own sin to rebel against our Creator, and the consequence of that, the consequence of ignoring that problem that God makes clear to us through his word, the consequence of ignoring that truth is eternal death. God has made himself known to all people and demands a response. So the question is then, how will you respond? You see, every person who's ever been created will either be the recipient of God's judgment or the recipient of his grace. Let's talk about those two things. That's the second thing we can learn from this story today. You see, the hard-hearted, those who suppress that truth, those who ignore the check engine light of your spiritual condition, of your heart, the hard-hearted, do not fear the Lord and will live in his forever wrath. That's what these acts of judgment on ancient Egypt are teaching us today. Look at chapter 9 again, verse 17. What, What did they say to Pharaoh? What did God say through Moses to Pharaoh? You are still exalting yourself. Pharaoh, it's not about you, buddy. You're still exalting yourself. You think that you can somehow assert yourself above the creator God. You think that people should answer to you. You think that no one should call the shots in your life except you. And then look at verse 30. (laughs) Moses says, after Pharaoh pretends to be sorry, For his sin. What does Moses say? You do not fear. You do not yet fear the Lord God. Fear the Lord. It's Halloween season. My my kids are super excited. But you see, this time of year, we start thinking of the word fear in a very particular way like spooky, like jump out, ah, boo, scary fear. But that's not what this word means. You see, the word fear, to fear the Lord, you know what that means? It means that you have a reverent awe of God's greatness and his majesty, of who he is. You know what else it means? It means that you have a healthy realization that God's discipline and judgment could be directed at you. Because he is the creator of all. And if you, decide, if you decide to sin against him, that's like spitting in his face. So you have this healthy fear, this healthy realization, this reverent sense of all of God's power and greatness and majesty. Moses says to Pharaoh, you don't have that. Because of his hard heart and his pride, he didn't fear the Lord. Even though he pretended to be sorry and repent, he wasn't sorry that he offended a holy God. Right? He was just sorry that he got caught, essentially. Right? He was sorry for his consequences. That's what he's sorry for. And let me tell you, that is a telltale sign that our hearts, perhaps your heart, is hardened and you don't fear the Lord. What I mean is, when you do something wrong, you confess it, you say you're sorry, you admit that you did something wrong, but you're really just doing that because the consequences are weighing on your conscience. And then before long, you're right back in the same spot doing the same thing again. We tend to think of addiction in terms of substance abuse, and it is, but there's other types of addictions. You could be addicted to sin. You could be addicted to thinking that you need to garner the respect of others, and so you will compromise your faith and your beliefs to get that. You could be addicted to the feeling of having wealth and comfort, and so you will compromise your faith and your beliefs to attain that. And then you think you've done something wrong, you confess it, you turn away from it in a way... But then you keep coming back to it in that addiction to sin. Let me tell you something. The root of that problem for every single one of us, no matter what the issue is, is a lack of reverent fear of the Lord. That's what that is. Because we don't see our sin like King David saw his sin. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba, what did he say? He said to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. David realized that his first and foremost problem was not that there's going to be bad consequences because of my bad mistake, and that's why I'm sorry. No, it's because I realized that I have offended my creator. I've offended the one who loves me. He is a holy God who gave up his life for me, and I have offended him. Against him have I sinned first before anyone else. That fear of the Lord is what brings true long-lasting, consistent godliness and repentance in your life. It doesn't mean that you're going to clean up your life and you're going to be perfect. No, as Christians, we're still going to sin. But the hallmark of a true Christian is someone who continually confesses and repents and turns away from their sin in a reverent fear of the Lord. So ultimately, these acts of judgment for God, from God are showing us that God takes sin seriously right god cannot just let sin go unpunished a good and righteous judge is only good if he punishes evil so that's terrible news for us the plagues are acts of grace though right that's what's remarkable in the story the plagues are acts of grace to get pharaoh's attention the opportunity to repent was there all along and that brings us to our last point the humbled the humbled fear the lord and will live in his forever grace. You do not have to experience the forever wrath of God. During the hell storm, look at this, chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Did you catch this? Notice this in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Then, this was during the the God when he was sent the hailstorm. storm. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. (laughs) This almost serves as a parable of how people experience either God's wrath or his grace. What's the kicker? Did they fear the Lord? Did they pay attention to him and his word? You see, those who will live in heaven forever with God, they're not people who figured it out or did a good job or tried to stand on their own. It's only the people who humble themselves in the fear of the Lord, who pay attention to his word and find shelter in Jesus Christ. But how can such a hard-hearted people like us, how can we even do that? Notice in this story, you know, there's God's judgment and salvation happening at the same time. As he is judging the Egyptians and Pharaoh for their evil wickedness, he is at the same time preserving, saving, and rescuing his people. How can both of those things happen at the same time? How can God unleash his wrath and his grace at the same time? You know where else we've seen that in the Bible? Before this. Remember knowing the flood? God sending the flood To wipe out the evil and wickedness in the world while at the same time, what is he doing? Also displaying his grace and love for his people. Both of those stories point us to the ultimate way that God's wrath and his love can happen at the same time. You see, the ninth plague we looked at today when darkness fell over the land for three days, that I'm gonna give you a little spoiler for next week. That darkness of three days preceded the 10th and final plague, which we're gonna look at next week, which is the death of all the firstborn sons in the land. Author Tim Chester and other commentators have reminded us of something very remarkable that you, we just have to wrap our minds around. I don't wanna share this with you. You know, that three those three days of darkness. You see, many years of later, there would be three hours of complete darkness that would also precede the death of a son, the son of God. You see, as Jesus hung and died on the cross, what's happening at the same time? God is unleashing His wrath and His judgment against all evil. But Jesus is absorbing that into Himself. And at the same time, what are we getting? The humble who fear the Lord are receiving the grace and the kindness and the mercy of a loving God. It's the cross we must look to. When we don't understand why our hearts gravitate towards sin, when we don't understand why is it so difficult for me to break this addiction, when we don't understand why things happen in the world the way they do, it's the cross of Jesus Christ that we must look to and be reminded that yes, our God is a holy God. He's a wrathful God. He's a good judge and he punishes evil justly. But at the same time, for those who find shelter under the cross, for those who come to Jesus and say, I am going to humble myself. I want to fear you, Lord. I want to live for you. I want to turn away from my sin because it tastes so bad and it's terrible. For those of us who find shelter under the cross in Jesus Christ himself, it is God's grace. It is his love. It is his blessing. It's eternal life. God's people were spared from the darkness of Egypt that day, those three days. They remained in the light. Listen, if you turn to Christ today, let me tell you something. Your life might get harder. Probably will. I don't want anybody to think that coming to Jesus means you're getting an easy life from this point forward. It's probably going to get worse because you're going to be following Jesus in a very, antagonistic world that hates him. So you go figure that out. How's that going to work? It's not going to be easy. But it's not about this life. It's about fearing the Lord and looking to the next life, eternal life in Christ, living forever in his presence, being called by his name, being known by him. You see, Jesus put himself in your darkness so that you could remain in the light. That only becomes true for us if you repent. Not like Pharaoh, not this fake stuff, but truly coming to the Lord and just humbling yourself and saying, God, I am sorry. I am so sorry that I have tried to be you. In all my pride and all the things I've ever done, I am sorry that I have been so prideful and arrogant and not feared you. Lord, let me fear you. I humble myself before you. That is salvation. That is salvation. That is how we experience God's forever grace. It is available to you. Please don't ignore the warning signs. Don't ignore the truth that God has for you, that he is real and he wants to know you. He wants to love you. He wants to rescue and redeem you and make you his own. Please don't ignore that. Our God hates sin, but boy, does he love us. Praise Jesus. He died for our sin in our place, and he's alive. He rose from the grave. He is a God we cannot ignore.